to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Hello, I'm Daria Brown, and this week we have three guests. John Carpente is an expert DIR training leader, professor of music therapy at Malloy College, founder and director of the Rebecca Center for Music Therapy, and founding music therapist and creator of the DIR floor-based music therapy program at Rebecca School in New York City, where he participated in weekly supervision and case conferences with Dr. Stanley Greenspan. Welcome back, John. And we also have Galena Itzkovich, who is a clinical social worker in New York City and a clinical consultant with ICDL, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, and a DIR expert training leader. She works with different clinical populations, including children and adults, both on the spectrum and neurotypical. And we have Dr. Beth Ammons, who is an MD in Montana, who has spent the last 18 years in hospice care, and she is working hard to add the element of palliative care. So why are we here today? We are here because we all attended the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning's 2020 conference on De Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, DIR Floor Time, and we watched a presentation that was entitled Prospects for the Use of DIR Floor Time Method in Child Palli Palliative Care System by two psychologists from Belarus, Anna Garchakova and DIR expert training leader Elena Akilova. And we also heard at that conference from Dr. Gil Tippi about good education and in that he described how we now have produced a number of professions where people can't think and he included doctors who aren't able to think anymore. They're just reading scripts of symptoms and prescribing based on that. He has written a book chapter about that and we'll be hearing from him in the next few weeks at Affect Autism as well. But let's start out with uh, Dr. John Carpente, who's going to tell us um, why this was interesting to us, because we would like to bring DIR floor time to a wider audience and talk about some of the applications, particularly in palliative care. So John, why don't you start out? Great. Well, thanks for hosting this. This is a great event and it's really exciting because I think DIR just, um, you know, there's misconceptions with DIR floor time that it has to be only done with children and only autistics and it means you're on the floor and um, which folks that practice the model, um, at least I could speak for myself, that um, I don't think that it, it, it's specific to a, a client population or a client group. Um, and I think what, what you pointed out with Dr. Tippy mentioned about um, doctors reading scripts and they're just focused on this prescribed way of being with people almost like you're prescribing medicine and that the relationship doesn't really matter in this medical model. Um, and I think um, that we have a lot to bring, you know, to, to, to medicine. Uh, DIR um, is a way of being. It's a way of being with, with people. It's this um, way of being human. Um, and floor time, although it could mean that you're on the floor playing in a conventional way, it's more of a philosophy. It's a philosophy that's geared around how to relate and communicate with people. And I would, I would even say that beyond the clinical setting, just how we be in the world um, and providing respect and respect for other people's, uh, I don't want to say for differences for lack of a better term, right? 
And so my, most of the work that I've done with DIR has been with children, autistic children. And one of the things is uh, the eye, the individual differences. You know, what's getting in the way of this person's ability to relate and communicate through a wide range of experiences and emotions? And I could see that relating to anybody, anybody. So in the context of palliative care, um, what's happening with this person? Have they changed their identity now that they, they have this, this disease in their blood or uh, for lack of a better term, of course, but what's getting in their way of being relational, getting to deeper, more um, significant moments of um, relating and communicating, you know, with folks, whether it's their a medical team or their family members. And so this is where the medical profession, the nurses and the doctors, I think, can come in and train or coach while being with patients. Um, uh, as you said earlier, I work, uh, I teach at Malloy College um, in the music therapy program. I also run a clinic. But what's great about the college is that it's very interdisciplinary. I want to say specific, but it's very interdisciplinary in terms of there are many uh, social service programs that are being taught there, specifically nursing. It's one of the top nursing programs in the country. And and I've been fortunate enough to connect with them. And every semester they ask me to come in and speak to their nurses. And um, they they say that because they have the misconception, too, that it's, it's something that well, we don't really work with autistics. I said, well, whether you do, you don't. It's just another way of being. And. The, the, the practice that's being taught at Malloy in nursing and beyond is more of a family-centered practice. So little did they know it aligns nicely with DIR and floor time, which is very family-centered. Um, and so I had an opportunity, I don't know, over the, I guess before the, the holiday break, to speak uh, to the nursing students on how this model can be conceptualized in a hospital. Um, whether you're working in oncology or in palliative care or even um, nurses that are working with the elderly and how this can um, help folks who are afflicted with dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so when people hear this, they're like, well, how can this be? We don't play with toys. I said it's about relational dynamics because it is a form of psychotherapy, whether you're working with kids, teenagers, adults, regardless, whether it's a medical uh, setting or school setting. And so th this, this forum today, I think, is, is, is really exciting. And, uh, and I hope that it gets out there you know, to the masses because it, it deserves uh, uh, an ear so to, or a voice, so to speak. Well, thank you for being a part of it. And it, it blends in so nicely with what Dr. Ammons is thinking. And she is relatively new to DIR floor time. Do you want to tell us a bit about what you do and where DIR floor time fits in? Hi, um, I would add to my hospice um, and palliative care background that I was a family physician first. I've been a family physician for over 30 years and I chose that profession because I love working with families and the dynamics within the family make or break circumstances of care level. Um, in, hosp in hospice, we're particularly working with a narrower group of people and families uh, compared to palliative care. Palliative care is an umbrella over hospice care. In hospice care, 
we basically, to get coverage from insurance or Medicare, have to um, have two physicians, the hospice physician and the primary oncologist or other physician, saying that there is a prognosis um, or an expectation that there will, uh, the patient will only live for six months. Um, this has actually got more elbow room to it than you might think because it is not uncommon for us as hospice team to come in to a family situation and stabilize it, which, uh, you know, between that and getting people off the poisons they might be on <laughs> because they're trying to kill a part of their body um, can actually lead to much greater quality of life. And that's the focus I have. And quality of life, as John says, it's not just about people who have illness. It's about every one of us. And uh, I got involved with DIR sort of sideways um, through my sister. And I took 101, which is the very first class. And I repeated it with another daughter of mine um, this uh, December. And in November, I went crazy at the conference. And I got to meet some of these people and connect, and it really energized me. So right now in Montana, which I joke we're 10 years behind everywhere else, but we're actually sometimes able to sneak in new topics and trainings, um, we do have some palliative care. So when I talk about palliative care, we have a doctor who is, well, that's where the buck stops basically, a nurse who does home visits regularly, um, social workers, and then a whole crew of aides of, um, we do have some musician thanatologists that do true end of life heart playing. Um, we have a massage therapist. Uh, we have, we do, um, what do you call it? You view your essential oils that we bring into the home. We, we use everything we can and we work with the whole family because if the family dynamics are not stabilized, then you can't really take care of that patient well. So um, we are very family centered. It's what we do. And the beauty of the DIR floor time is just as John said, it's about us our whole lifetime. And it's about quality of life. And yes, um, physicians can get stuck on how we're supposed to communicate with people. And that is slowly changing. There's no doubt about it. And some of it um, would definitely be better with DIR floor time training. Um, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, trying to change medicine is like being Sisyphus and trying to push a big rock up a hill and not have it roll over you on the way down and then keep pushing. So I'm excited to see people making those changes, actually actively making the changes. And I wanna get on board. I just wanna be on board and, and uh, neurodiversity couldn't be more true at end of life too. I mean, I am currently working with a dear friend uh, who has Alzheimer's. He was a physician. He resisted treatment because he had this black and white thought. And now we are painting. Um, we had an incredible 
celebration of his life with his whole family showing up, doing poems and stories. And this man went from not being able to complete a sentence to using metaphor and also making jokes. And he beamed the entire time his family was there. And it knocked me back because I was seeing him as someone who couldn't do those things. So I am very humbled by what I see. I'm very excited. And uh, I, I can't wait to bring this to more fruition in my area. Well, thanks, Beth. And, and that really uh, goes to say, you know, we look for the why behind the behavior and we always presume competence in DIR floor time. And as you just mentioned, it's easy to forget about competence, especially when you see someone declining. And so I want to bring it to Galena now to say, you know, how do we bring this DIR floor time to the medical model? And, um, you know, how do you see this kind of thing happening? And, and how does it look in your own social work? Um, thank you. I'm so happy to be here and to have this uh, interdisciplinary discussion because it's long, long overdue. And actually, I had a lot of uh, uh, thoughts when I heard uh, what John had to share with his work with nurses and especially what Beth was saying uh, in her work in palliative care because it, it so happened that I supervised uh, Ileana on uh, uh, during her putting together the article. And also I uh, worked with another uh, former student of mine from Latvia who also works in palliative care and they also use this approach there. And they found out, uh, first of all, they walked in and they um, found out that people are being objectified. And we, we, the professionals, we assume that that's an object that's in our care. We need to turn them. We need to roll them over. We need to change them. We need to. But first of all, we need to figure out what's happening with them. And yes, maybe they are in crisis. They are in this existential crisis when they are losing skills, children and adults alike. So we need to figure out what this tiny spark of interest is and treat everything that uh, they pay attention to, everything that they concentrate on as their interest and start with that. And in the social work field, we've been taught for ages how to do assessment, how to collect information, how to pay attention to body language and facial expression and uh, general affect and this and that. And now what? What do we do with this information? So I think that DIR floor time steps in with a very nicely packaged uh, strategies where we finally know why we do what we've been doing. Uh, we need to use our mirror neurons to tune in with their affect. We need to uh, trace their facial expression and figure out how to mimic it. We need to downregulate them if they're overly excited or angry or enraged or frightened. And how do we do it? DIR offers all of that. So 
to me, it's like John said, it's the way of life. It's the whole professional philosophy that will seep into other areas. But it's really important that we work together and we work on it as a team and we can uh, really make it happen with this holistic approach to a person and uh, also uh, learning from other professions. And what I heard you describe there were a few of the key uh, principles of DIR floor time, which is meeting the patient where they're at. And we talk about that as meeting, meeting at the developmental level that they're at and following their lead. So what is it that's going on with them? What is their emotional interest? What are they paying attention to in that moment? And then moving them up the developmental ladder, because you mentioned that they may be focused on, um, you know, the grief of losing their skills that they have. And um, I know you you mentioned following their lead, um, you know, it not only physically, cognitively, physiologically, all of these ways to tune into them on this emotional and physiological level and, and try to bring them up. And um, John mentioned, and, and, and Beth mentioned as well, the, the relationship, like DIR floor time is all about the relationship and how do we manage what gets in the way of that? And that's what DIR floor time is. Um, so how, John, how do you see that happening where you're, you're sort of coaching or modeling respecting everybody in the room and joining and can families do it on their own and and how do you show them why they're doing it um it and it and i think the important point too is it it, it may or may not be something that we are able to teach but it comes with clinical experience did you want to talk a little bit about that sure yeah um because those are great questions um i think just how we would work clinically goes into how we teach. It's hard to like teach empathy because when we say follow the client's lead or the child's lead, I think, you know, I'm trying to meet their affect and then respond with spontaneous true empathy as opposed to like a stock response, you know? And so I think it, it the participant who we're working with coaching, teaching is all plays a role. And um, it's something that they become their own agent. So I don't know if it's about, hey, when this person says this, you should do that. Uh, because then we're just teaching them what to do based on what I would do. As opposed to then, um, what I like to try to do in training is try to help the trainee or whoever I'm doing this with gather an understanding of what's getting in their way of being able to pick up on this cue or being able to show more affect. Because maybe they have some challenges in those ways. And, and then on top of this, if there's like a, a caregiver of a, of someone in palliative care, they have these emotional challenges that are going that that may need to be um, processed with. Um, the thing that Galena brought up, I, I really like and resonate with, and I think relates to this is that how folks are being objectified, you know, and I, I kind of equate that in, if we put it in a DIR context, it's, it's like folks reducing people to their behaviors. So they don't, they're not people, they're behaviors, you know. Uh, oh, they're going to act out when they do this. Or, or in the medical, maybe they're having a, in the, in, the, in, the, in the medical context, maybe they're having a, 
an adverse reaction or response to something. So we're working more holistically. So how can we, I don't want to say change people's lens or a trainee's lens, but help them expand their range of how they see things. And can they locate themselves differently, you know, to see it through this lens or that lens? Because we want to make sure we're responding, not reacting, and that the response is not based on our own need as a caregiver or a therapist, but the need of whoever we're working with, if that makes sense. Um, so teaching this, I think the, the I think instead of DIR, it should be RID, right? Um, because that is where everything is happening in the the self-reflection process. I know when I, as I I'm a trainer in, in, in DIR, one of the things we try to facilitate or provide experiences for, because I don't know how you can facilitate this, is how is the trainee self-reflecting? How can we facilitate self-reflection in this process? Because what they have to learn or understand is that it's a parallel process between them and whoever they're caring for. And if we can do that, you know, and then as clinicians, we can only give as much as we are and as much as we know. And I, so I think that self-reflection piece kind of adds grist for the mill, if you will, <laughs> uh, when we're in, as Greenspan would say, cooking in this relational uh, way of working with folks um, w w in whatever clinical context. Yeah, and, it, and the key being that it's a process. And I've done a, a bunch of podcasts around process-oriented learning in school settings but it's the same that you just described. It's the same where you're working with a family and Beth, you can probably speak to this working with families. It, it's a process. You described the process of your friend going from black and white thinking to, you know, not being able to speak for a while to, you know, getting to this point where because of the relationship, because of the family coming in, because of the joining together and, and relationship, his developmental ladder increased to joking and using metaphors. I, yes, it, it's a profoundly uh, strong way to bring quality of life to someone. And the relationship, I agree, it, John, it, it's everything. And it's what, to have that kind of really positive relationship, you do have to think holistically. And I happen to have always felt this way. So I'm an easy um, person to jump in and say, yeah, let's do this, you know, um, but it's going to take some strategy, so to speak, to bring it to everyone else. However, one strategy is when I was on call last weekend and it was a rodeo, I called it, is <laughs> it was really challenging. We had really sick people and poor communication from the hospitals and the nurses were in the crossfire. I, I floor timed them. I, yeah, I helped them regulate. I was regulating myself because it was overwhelming at times. And it's very profound and being able to see how that, how powerful that is in my own life in both personally and professionally, that's part of that reflection and that's part of the power of it um, because I, I just think that in medicine, we are changing. You know, when I first 
graduated, got my MD 33 years ago, you know, a lot of my training was more, as you say, uh, an objectification, this, but more an identification of somebody by their disease. It's certainly not a holistic look at them. And uh, I have never felt like that's the way to take care of people. So I'm fortunate enough to have years of experience as a family doc and as a hospice and palliative care doctor. And I, I really get this and I really believe in it. And I am a neophyte. I'm just now taking the first 200 level course and um, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. And I think there are a number of ways that I can bring this to fruition. And it may start just with my interactions with the nurses. And I wanted to point out uh, for those listening on the audio podcast or watching on YouTube at the full blog post at affectautism.com, if you search palliative, I will have a write-up with links to what we're talking about, including links to the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, the HOMA DIR floor time, and the courses that Beth described taking. 101 is the intro course, 201, uh, you achieve your basic certificate. So I'll have links to that. and. Um, there's discount codes at Affect Autism to take those courses. Um, Galena, did you want to jump in on what you've heard? Yes, sure. Uh, it goes right, it's up my alley because uh, social work and uh, psychotherapy and Dr. Greenspan came that tradition too. Is traditionally all about reflection, the parallel process, what it does to you, how this work changes you what happens in the process, your own reactions. And uh, we had this tradition of reflective supervision, the basic supervision or more advanced supervision, but it's kind of in our blood, in our professional blood. And uh, in teaching courses, I'm just amazed to see how other professions come in. And for them, it's, a, it's mind blowing, it's a change of paradigm. So I can go in and talk to my supervisor, not about the paperwork and not just problem uh, solving and troubleshooting, but I can actually talk about how it makes me feel. Why is that important? Well, it's important because then you go back to that patient with all your baggage. And by doing that, it really changes your uh, interaction with the patient. So knowing how to unpack it behind the door and walk in with something that is more patient-centered, I think this is the skill that is yet to be learned by so many professionals in the medical field. But uh, I'm very happy, Beth. I wish you waited a little bit and joined my course that starts in February, my 201. But, uh, well, maybe some other time we will uh, interact and work more. But this is really exciting that it seeps into the medical profession. I just spoke to the, just got off the uh, session with a patient who was complaining how the medical professionals handled her COVID. And she was reflecting on how they're very uh, kind of missing cold. Okay, it's in your head. Attitude really affected her. And she spent next six months uh, struggling with this concept of being defective. 
this is amazing what our words and our affect and our emotions can do to people it can bring them up it can uh treat everything as meaningful and help us uh capitalize on what we have or it can bring us down shut us down and rob us of what we have so they treated her as much as they could treat it but also they took something away from her yeah and you made such a good point about affect um the reason the site is called affect autism it's all about affect and engaging in that moment and and how you can turn that into and you had said this before in a previous conversation turn that into interpersonal excitement and i loved the way that you termed it in that way because uh, you just described the opposite process where someone turns it into inter interpersonal um devastation i don't know what the word would be but the, the validation yeah taking something away and saying no mm -hmm. you see things and you hear things and you feel things that are not there very judgmental and very cold and uh it cuts something off and i'm sure that it cuts something off neurologically as well beth am i right i think it also damages the caregivers you know the you know physicians have an extremely high rate of suicide and i think i believe very strongly that part of it is um, we have been told from long ago that we need to remain objective. And because of that training, you know, we're spouting statistics. Um, and when I was teaching in a family medicine residency, um, they weren't being told, wait, watch, and, you know, get in there and see where they're at and join them. Not in those specific words. However, um, one of the reasons I taught was I felt that this was somewhat missing from my training. And the greatest difference I can make is when I work with young doctors and also nurses. And um, the problem is often that I think not so much in family medicine, but in some of the other um, specialties, you know, there's this huge burden of knowledge that we're expected to have. And right now in COVID, we're being slammed. We, you know, we're watching people die right and left and we know that we want to do better. And um, so I think it's also about um, bringing this in for the well-being of the professionals as well. And once they can live that way, they will bring it into their doctoring. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, people need to figure out how they're going to replenish what they have, especially when they have so little with COVID. They have little, little to offer. Where do I go? Where is resource? So floor time, DIR floor time offers that resource. That's how you can get recharged and come back with a little bit maybe, but come back with some emotional energy, come back with uh, ability to tune in and work with the patient where the patient is uh, at and also work with the family because families in crisis, 
they also need us. Yes. Maybe more than the patient sometimes, because like you said, we sometimes we, and also in your line of work, you cannot probably do much for a patient, but you can do so much for the family. Mm -hmm. So the family comes in with a different attitude and different resources. Yeah, we try to keep our, a really broad look at things. And because we know that how the patient is doing is reflected in the family and vice versa. So um, it is incredibly important to keep in mind the best approach that we might have. And it has to be able to change and adapt because people aren't statistics and they aren't going to just sit there and behave in one way. And so part of it is if we better understand why these things are happening, then we can better respond to them, um, which is what we want to do. Um, I I have incredible respect for hospice, um, my hospice team, and we meet once a week and review patients. And we all put in observations and suggestions. And it is the best medicine I've ever practiced. And I really hear so many parallels between the work done with children. And I think Galena and John will agree with me that Beth could be an expert training leader, the way she's speaking about it. You're a natural at this, um, the way that we work with parents. So sometimes the parents need the, the DIR floor time more than the kids and, you know, the support in how to relate to their children and how to accept their children for who they are and how to respect the individual differences and how to respect all the emotional experiences that a child uh, presents, etc. And um, John, I know you had spoken a bit before when when we were talking about getting this podcast together about what gets in the way of a robust relationship. And I wondered if you wanted to discuss a little bit about that. Sure. Um, well, it could be the individual differences, you know, it's, it's, uh, when, when Beth pointed out uh, when you were working with that gentleman and, and he's able to get into, you know, more abstraction and, and not only, not only is that a milestone, but it, 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 it deepens the relationship. You can get into a, a deeper level of, um, of that. But also what might get in the way could be the clinician getting in his or her own way. Um, and Beth, when you mentioned about adapting and whatnot, I think that's one of the trickiest things with floor time is being reflexive in the moment. And uh, because that's like uh, harnessing affect, you know, and kind of always being there, but then having this understanding, this observing ego that's on your shoulder to check in and say, okay, whose need is this? Am I doing this based on the client or the patient's need or is it my own? And so sometimes that can get you know in our way um being able to provide a certain intervention and then when do you know when to stop following the lead because if we just sit you know providing empathy can be done through a range of contexts um but it could also be um the client it could just be a catharsis which is fine Mm -hmm. but then sometimes we can take that and try to make it more reciprocal in a, in a moment. It could be a learning moment there of, you know, what is this catharsis about? So in turn, making it more about the in the moment, what's going on between you and me, as opposed to what went on between you and your parent or brother. 
because I believe in, in, in this model, and again, it's not just this model, it's most relationship-based models, that what happens in, that, in, that, in the therapy room or the, or the medical room or the treatment room is a microcosm for, for what's happening out, you know, um, outside of that. So I think to sum up what gets in the way of robustness is getting a better understanding of, of, of the eyes and mostly with times with kids, it could be sensory uh, challenges and uh, how the, 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 the um, how the person's taking in the sights and sounds. And then folks that maybe have more control over their sensory systems, it could be emotional challenges and what's got going in at that moment. Um, but I just think, you know, all in all, though, it's the clinician's responsibility to know his or her individual differences, too, because that can get in the way. And that's the self-reflective piece that I think we all chatted about earlier and also just uh people's defense mechanisms that come up uh something gets triggered in you that you didn't expect to be coming <laughs> and how you can reflect on that um i i know um like i think it was john had given an example before before this podcast you know if someone's in pain and they throw a bedpan at you it's not about you um, and how do you reflect with that? Or it could be because you're not listening. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it could be a form of communication, right? Mm -hmm. so, well, we have to figure that out, I guess, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> and not all defenses are bad. There are times when um, it's how someone is sort of holding on to their truth. And, and I think it's really important for us to understand that um, their truth is important and we're not going to correct them or somehow try to get in their head and and prove we're right and they're wrong and i think that's part of the sticking point for a lot of physicians um, and nurses um, i think our training still puts us in that that role of being the expert when in all truth every pregnant mom and every baby that i took care of for years and years, I would say you are the expert on what's happening for you. And um, unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. And it may be time, you're getting crunched, you have 10 more, 15 more patients to see. But I do think there's ways to relate that can, can adapt to that. Again, adapting. Well, it couldn't, uh, you, you, you said, the most important thing here, and I all want to second it, that yes, parents are the experts. And yes, sometimes uh, we start to treat parents without them asking us to treat them. So this is really important to remember the boundaries and to know that they did not come here to be treated. They came to explore with us how their child can be helped. And this is the road of expl exploration not treatment and not every treatment needs to be about breaking something down like mm -hmm. you also you said that defense mechanisms yes they're like a storm door that defense mechanisms defend us yeah. we need them like we need some anxiety in our bodies that's our survival mechanism we need some of those things and it's a very delicate dance how we balance it and it's not a nice way to, you know, uh, come uh, running for help and break somebody's storm door. Uh, they probably won't be happy to see us. 
<laughs> so we need to find some other ways of getting in and helping them down there. So working with the defense mechanisms, not against them, not breaking down, and not breaking down parents as we try to help children. And, and bringing hope to the situation. I think um, often that is um, not a focus um, or it's a focus in a way that, you know, doctors are like, well, the prognosis is, you know, X, Y, and Z, but I have seen over and over again in my work um, as a doctor that hope is powerful. It's powerful. It allows change and adapt ad adapting for all of us. And I think that's an important key. I think to, to, tell, uh, to piggyback on that, I think hope and empowerment, especially, mm -hmm. you know, I can use my own experiences when I go into a hospital and you feel so helpless because, you, you know, I don't know medicine. And, but I know people, you know, and I know what it's like when I feel connected with someone, a doctor or whatnot. And, and so that in itself, at least in my own experience, kind of empowers me where I have control over something mm -hmm. as opposed to, because I think there is a hierarchy, you know, and it's utilized in, in the hospitals, not everywhere, but mm -hmm. I, I think that that happens and where the patient is down here and the, you know, you saw Patch Adams, right? Come on. <laughs> that, that, Patch Adams is the epitome of this and folks watching this podcast, I don't know, I'm dating myself, but um, it's really all about that, you know, that, that you, you can be with patients in a, in a more, uh, you know, level playing field and still provide them with the medical care. And it's not about fixing them because mm -hmm. they don't need fixing. They just mm -hmm. need some patchwork in an area that they can't, you know, fix themselves, so to speak. But it's this process, you know, of, you know, I'm going to be with you along these lines. And uh, how can I empower you during this process? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that, John, because um, one of my mentors over the years was Dr. Rachel Raymond who's uh, done some amazing work um, training uh, physicians and nurses and working with patients. And, you know, the, one of the cornerstones that she um, teaches is called generous listening. And that generous listening is put that whatever's in your head behind the door and really be there, really be present and um, recognizing also that your stuff gets carried into the, into the exchange if you're not paying attention. And um, she has two books that are just remarkable and I give them freely to all my professional friends. Um, so and let me, let me just uh, loop in to say, uh, Dr. Costa and I had a really good conversation about this a few podcasts back as well um, about the reflection and, and how that stuff creeps in and that needs to be part of the process and the training of professionals. Yes. And I mean, you guys were speaking about the hospital hierarchy and, and the first thing I think about is the school hierarchy. I, I mm. work at the Ministry of Education and you have you know, the students should be the priority 
and then you know the teachers may or may not think they know better but then you have the people at the ministry of education and it's in the states it's the department of education you know oh well we're we're creating the policies and we're mandating what the teachers need to do and, and you have these hierarchical struggles when all of the things that are most important get lost and it's the patient or the student mm -hmm. i also wanted to loop back to a podcast or a, a blog post done that I'll, I'll link to in the the blog uh a few years back about how DIR floor time is aligned with patient rights and uh, the neurodiversity movement. So um, that was another blog post that we can link to. But um, before we wrap up, was there was there anything else? We, we covered so many different areas, but I think the the larger topic and idea is how do we integrate the DIR model into the medical field as well? Uh, we, we're already trying to do it in the world of autism where uh, Dr. Shanker is already trying to do it in the world of schools with his self-reg and how can we move it everywhere <laughs> but especially um, in this in this field of medicine and as Galena pointed out where Dr. Greenspan came from as a as a child psychiatrist yeah. so any last thoughts uh, I think that Beth just mentioned something that can be uh, the last thought listening i think columbia university medical school has this program of narrative medicine at which university uh columbia i think okay. columbia university Med medical school has this program i'm not sure but most likely and yes this is the shift mm -hmm. to be able to sit in with the patient and listen to the patient's story yeah not the silent patient. Yeah, in education, um, it is being pursued, especially I think in family medicine, it's sort of a natural fit there, um, but it's difficult. Um, and part of the difficulty is the incredible demands on the young doctors, you know, how much they have to learn. Um, they're on the hot seat, they're missing lots of sleep. And um, so, when I was teaching them, one of the things I focused on is, is helping them regulate because I felt that if they could regulate, then they could bring that in the room with them, with the patients. Yes, and maybe that's the way to change eventually, one day to change and humanize the entire system. I started my career in a hospital. I know what hospitals are like. It's very demanding, very fast paced, and it's very easy to uh, lose the patient mm -hmm. along the way. Very. So listening and adopting uh, a model that will help us sit and be there with the patient, observe and think how we can use this observation to our professional benefit, way it's going to propel the overall uh, progress of the illness, if we look at it from the illness and disease model. So yeah, it can be useful. I, I think on a, on a practical uh, level, when you mentioned uh, dairy, you know, how to make this happen. Um, I think things like this, this podcast, I think awareness first, cause I think, you know, DIR is synonymous, you know, it's, it's with kids with autism. And I think the trainings then should 
focus on things like this because um, that's going to attract uh, people that work in the de- different, you know, say palliative care hospice or mm-hmm. oncology, whatever it is. Because I just think it's people just have this one way of thinking about DI, and they should. It's our job, really, as the professionals, to get it out there. We have to do a better job. And now that you know, Beth, that you brought this—I mean, that you initiated this talk—that's great. We need more folks in within your discipline uh, to come and do the trainings, and then become a trainer, and then uh, create a course. <laughs> but I think on a practical level, that's probably you know possibly one of the avenues that we can we can take and I know it's exciting for me because I've always felt this way um, but you know my clinical practice although I've had experience in hospitals and working you know with different populations but for the, over the, the past 20 years I've been with kids and adolescents and so um, I don't know the medical field as well or probably these, these, these other areas but I do think that it crosses through disciplines and, and crosses through clinical populations because of the essence of the model. So if we can get it out there and just create more awareness like we're doing now, um, that could be a good start. It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And I do know that uh, the executive director of the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, Jeff Gunzel, it has been very interested in bringing MDs into the model. So um, he was very excited to hear about Beth's interest and uh, who knows, maybe Beth will lead the cause. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I, I crawl around on the floor at 62 with my 13 month old grandson and have a grand time. I'm, I'm up for it. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for being here today. Uh, Dr. Beth Ammons in Montana, Dr. John Carpente from the Rebecca Center in New York City and social worker Galena Itzkovich in New York City. Um, and I'm Daria Brown of Affect Autism. Be sure to check out the links at affectautism.com for a write-up and there will be in the description a link to actually two publications that recently came out on this topic, which uh, we didn't really get a chance to discuss much, but this, uh, this was one that Galena was involved in, DIR Floor Time, non-directive method to help improve communication and develop emotional intelligence. And the one that was from the conference, uh, the implementation of the DIR model and DIR floor time approach in the system of palliative care for children that was presented at the ICDL conference. So I'll put links to both of those as well on the website. Uh, Yes, and I just want to add that the publication came out uh, in the uh, journal Mental Health global challenges and we are very much uh, dir minded and those professionals who want to submit these remember to submit articles to mental health global challenges thank you yes galena's on the editorial board um so that would be great we we always need more publications around dir floor time thanks again i can't thank you guys enough for bringing this to the audience Thank Thank you you for having me. Thank you. Thank everybody. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home 
using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level, their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions.